Hello, church family. I uh, wish I could be with you today. And this isn't the way I expected to be preaching, delivering this message, but I'm really grateful that we have the technology where I'm still able to share with you from God's word. We can still learn about God from his word, the Bible, even when we can't be together. And it's great that he's blessed us in that way. And you know what? That's actually what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about God's good hand, how he works for us, and his good word, the Bible. And we're going to look at examples throughout the chapter in the book of Ezra that we're studying where we see those two things, God's good hand and his good word. Now, what I mean by God's good hand is I mean God's power, how he acts on our behalf and how he takes care of us. And by his good word, I'm I mean this, the, the Bible, the, his word that he has given to us so that we can know him and that we can live for him every day. And we need to be thinking about these things every day. We need to know how God works on our behalf. And we need to believe that he has spoken to us in his word. We need this to go through every stage of life. And this is a message that our world needs as well. It's needed to impact our world. The world needs People who know God and live for him. Well, if you remember where we are, we're in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, we're in the Old Testament where God is particularly revealing himself to one people, the Israelites. And as he's showing himself to them, getting to know them, working on their behalf, he put them in a promised land, but they sinned, rebelled against God, and they spent 70 years in exile away from that promised land. And these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, are about God's people coming back to the land. And there's waves of people coming. They don't all come back at one time. Some come, then some more. So we spent the past couple times we were looking at these books talking about the first wave of people to come back. But now we're talking about the second wave, which came 57 years after where we left off with that first group of people. So let's read Ezra chapter 7. I'm not going to read every verse, but most of them. And then we'll see where we can see God's good hand and the power of his word in this text. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1 says, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, and then it gives his genealogy, his, so I'm going to go ahead to verse 6, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 7 tells us about other people who came with Ezra to Jerusalem. And then verse 8 says, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Verse 11 says, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. 
And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia. And with the free will offerings of the people and the priest vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver for the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Verse 21, And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. He says you can give them up silver, wheat, wine, oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. Verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him. And then finally, Ezra responds in verses 27 and 28. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray. God, as we think about this passage today, I pray you will help us to see your good hand for your people, how you work on our behalf. May we also see your good word, God, your truth that you've given us that we are to know you by and to live by. May we respond appropriately to both what you've done for us and to your word you've given us. I pray that our focus may be on you and that you may get the glory of what happens today. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So the first thing we're going to talk about in this passage is God's good hand 
And you probably heard that a couple times. It's a phrase that shows up in verses 6, verse 9, verse 28, and it appears throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll see it next week three times in chapter 8, and then we'll also see it twice in Nehemiah 2, talking about God's power. So remember, we've jumped ahead 57 years. The author is not interested in everything that's happened to the Israelites. He's focused on God's people returning. This is what happened to the first group, and now here we are with the second group. And the king of Persia at the time, remember that the empire that's ruling over everything, this king, Artaxerxes, gives Ezra, a scribe, authority to teach, to establish God's law, to appoint judges and leaders, and to repair, to adorn God's temple in Jerusalem. Our text introduces us to Ezra by giving us his lineage, the people he's descended from. And it goes all the way back to Aaron, the very first high priest. It's kind of showing that Ezra is qualified to lead this change, this revival of God's people. He has authority from his ancestors, and with the letter we read in this passage, he has authority from the Persian king. And in this, we see one of our first glimpses of God's good hand in this passage. God has raised up new leaders for his people. And God always does this. He always raises up spiritual leaders among his people. He works by his power and his hand in history. He raises up the people he needs for when he needs them. In all this that we're going to read, it's not something that Ezra did. It's all by God's grace, his good hand. We see another evidence of God's good hand in what we read in verse 6. We read that the king granted him all, everything that he asked. Everything Ezra asked the king for, the king gave him. This letter that we read is probably Ezra asked for all these things. And the king said yes and gave it to him in an official letter. Ezra used political channels where he can to advance God's kingdom purposes. Ezra made the request, and even though the king said yes, he realized that it's really God that honored it, because the passage gives God the credit. Again, verse 6 says, the king granted him all that he asked for because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. This is the same way this phrase is used in the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 2, 8, Nehemiah says something very similar. He says, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And so in this time, it's the seventh year of the king, and we know from history that that's around 458 BC. Around that time, Ezra leaves Babylon, where most of the Israelite exiles were living, to return to Jerusalem. The way the text says it, it says he went up to Jerusalem, and that's the way it's always talked about in the Old Testament. It was a journey probably about 800, 900 miles and would have seemed to be slow because they would have children and those who were elderly. We'll talk more about that journey, hopefully next week when we look at chapter 8. But where we see God's hand here is that it says that he left on the first day of the first month, that's in April sometime, and then he arrives on the first day of the fifth month. So that's sometime in August. God was with them in this journey. And the text talks about it in a way that's similar to how the Israelites came out of slavery in Egypt and entered the promised land. The journey was successful only because of God's good and gracious hand toward his people. Well, the next large chunk of the chapter is 
the king, Artaxerxes, his letter, and it's written in the trade language of the day, Aramaic. We have it in English so we can understand it, but if you were reading the original, you'd be in Hebrew, and then all of a sudden you have this letter in Aramaic. And the reason the author did that is to show this is a genuine letter. This is something they actually had. They put it right here in the book. It was a letter written to Ezra to reinforce the king's command, to appoint Ezra as his diplomat in Jerusalem. We see God's good hand behind this even. In verse 12, the king calls himself Artaxerxes, king of kings, because he rules over kingdoms, but God's the one who's really behind this. He alone is the true king. Artaxerxes says that any Jew who freely offered or who volunteered could return to Jerusalem. The exile was over for anyone who wanted to go back. Artaxerxes' concern is he wants to rebuild this temple because the Persians really like doing this, rebuilding temples of other gods so they could have multiple gods being nice to them because they believed there were all these other gods out there and they wanted them to look favorably on them. But Ezra, I think God has a different concern. His concern was the Israelites' spirituality, their relationship with God. But the king is concerned rebuilding the temple. His counselors and advisors and him, they give money so they can rebuild God's dwelling, which is in Jerusalem, as verse 15 describes it. Now, when it says that, we, we know that God is everywhere and can do everything. But in this time, he made his presence known in Jerusalem. The Old Testament authors realized that this wasn't saying that God was confined there. It was just describing where he made his presence known. The book of Second Chronicles chapter 6 puts it this way. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. But I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Now, now we know that God dwells in our hearts. For these people, though, they're going to rebuild this temple where they, God has revealed his presence. And those who are still in exile, those Jews who did not decided not to go back, they could also give offerings for what was going to happen. And the king did as well. And here we see God's good hand again. Verse 18 says, whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do, the king trusted Ezra and his people to use the resources for what they thought was best. God makes Ezra a man that even non-believers trust. The king provides them with extra vessels and articles to use, and he says they can have more money if they need it. And once again, the royal treasury of Persia is open for God's people. Artaxerxes tells local officials to obey this command, help Ezra with all diligence, aid him right away on his journey. They are to give him resources, we read about in verse 22, that would have supplied the temple for about two years and help them return to proper worship. And in this, here's another hint of God's good hand. God even takes care of the little details for his people. The end of verse 22 says he can get salt without prescribing how much. Salt without limit. Now, this was important because they needed salt to season and preserve the things they were going to offer as sacrifices before God. The book of Leviticus puts it this way, Leviticus 2.13. It says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. 
You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Here, in this passage, we see that God provides the salt that they need. Now, the king, as we've talked about, his concern was himself and, and his descendants and his kingdom. It says in verse 23, so the wrath of God won't be against his realm, but God is using his desire for self-preservation to rebuild his temple, restore the spiritual relationship of his people. Let's see one more example of God's good hand in verse 24. He says that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on those who work in the temple. Even though this king, we read about him earlier when we were studying in chapter four, and he was very concerned about getting taxes, but here he's very willing to give an exemption to religious leaders and workers. And this kind of tax exemption is something that a lot churches really have today as well. And it's, it's a grace of God that we often take for granted. The only reason that we don't pay the same kinds of taxes as other organizations or businesses is because of God's grace. This benefit of a tax-exempt status that churches have, that's, that's a gift from those in authority. It's not a guaranteed promise, and it could change someday. But for now, we can praise God, thank him for his good hand he's shown us in allowing us to devote more of our resources for his kingdom and his kingdom work. So we've seen God's good hand throughout this chapter. But what does it mean to us? What, what should be our response to seeing God's good hand on our behalf? Well, I think verses 27 and 28 answer that for us. And that answer is we should praise God and take courage. Our response to God's good hand is to praise God and take courage in our life. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. They say, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. In these verses, we see Ezra responding to God's good hand on his behalf, and his first response is to praise, bless God for what he has done. There's almost a hint here that Ezra is, is shocked or somewhat overwhelmed that he got everything he asked for. For the king, he's like, these are the things we really need. The temple, I'll ask the king. He's like, yeah, yeah, well, we'll do all of those. And in his almost dumbfounded state, his response is, blessed be the Lord that he put this in the king's heart that we were able to do this. That's why he's praising, because God turned, he put something in the king's heart. God used this ruler who didn't know him for the benefit of his people. And we've seen this again and again so far as we looked at the book of Ezra. We talked about this the last time we were in the book. In Ezra 6, it says the Israelites kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy because the Lord had made them joyful. He had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. 
we see in that verse that God can even use non-believers for his purposes. He can turn the heart of anyone. Praise God for his work in men's hearts. And it's even what God was doing through the king that led Ezra to praise. Because God worked in the king's heart to beautify, to honor his house and his temple. In verse 27, the word is to beautify the house of the Lord. And by using that, many people believe that Ezra is referring to a prophecy that one of the Old Testament prophets did. The prophet Isaiah said this in Isaiah 60. He said, The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. I will beautify my beautiful house. So many believe that Ezra thinks by putting this, that God is fulfilling his prophecy. He uses those words to say, this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah said. In this, Ezra is seeing God's steadfast, faithful, and unfailing love, mercy, and favor to his people. We'll talk about it in a few weeks in Ezra 9 when he prays this prayer. He says, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So Ezra responded in praise to what he saw. But if we're going to praise God in the same kind of way Ezra is, then we need to think the same way he does and look for evidence of God's good hand in our lives. We need to think about what's happened to us every day or throughout the week and how it reflects God's mercy to us. Of course, the the greatest example of God's mercy that we could ever know is the fact that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. As we talked about how the Israelites were in slavery, they were in exile. Well, we were in slavery to sin. We were stuck in rebellion against God. But God sent his son, Jesus, to come to live a perfect life to set us free from that slavery so that we could know God, so that we could have a relationship with him. He sent Jesus to came, he lived, he died, and he rose to give us new life. He gives us that life we turn away from sin and we believe, we trust, we put our faith in him. Have you praised God for that? Have you come to know Jesus and so responded in praise? Blessed be God, thank you for doing that work. To save me. Do you know Jesus Christ? If not, I pray that you can send me an email or talk to somebody who's there in the church. If you're watching online, you can email us and we would love to have a conversation with you about how you can know Jesus. But if we know God, that doesn't mean the praise stops then. We should follow Ezra's example and look for how has God's good hand been active in our lives. We should think through our our day, our week, and think about how has God been working for us. Let me think for myself. Well, I'm not with you like I like to be. Um, Christine and I have to deal with uh, effects of illness, but we, we have a warm apartment to live in. God has given us this space. He's provided our resources for us. Praise God at moment recording this and Lord willing throughout this time, we haven't had to go to the hospital. And God's also blessed us in the wonderful volunteers we have at the church. John and others who were able to put the work in so that you can watch this 
on Sunday morning. And that that's incredible that there's so many people who are willing to serve God in that way. And when I look at all that evidence of God's good hand, I respond, praise God. And then that ties right into the second response Ezra has and that we should have as well. Ezra says at the end of verse 28 that I took courage. I was strengthened. I was encouraged for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Because of what he'd seen God doing, he trusted that God would always be there to help him. As one psalmist says in Psalm 119, he prays, let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. What this means is that when we see God acting on our behalf, it should give us the courage to continue pursuing God. If we've seen God be faithful to us in the past, we can have confidence he will be faithful to us in the future. And that's why we need to discipline ourselves to look for where God's hand, his goodness has been shown to us because that gives us motivation to keep going, to keep living for the Lord. Let me challenge you, if you haven't done this, take time once this week. God, if you really want to challenge say take time every day to sit back and think, how has God's good hand been active in my life? How has God shown himself faithful to me this week or today? And when you're afraid of something that you have coming up, if you have that discipline, you can go back and say, but wait, I just took time to think about how God did this, this, and this for me. Why won't he take care of this other thing that I'm worried about? He has brought you this far. He's not done with you yet. So that's God's good hand. But if we're going to remember that, if we're going to be faithful to that, now that most of us, I'm not this week, but most of us are back in the church, what will it take for us to remain faithful to God, remain trusting in him, looking for his hand, praising him, living for him? For that, we need God's good word, his good word. So we looked at how God was working on Ezra's behalf, but now we're going to think about who Ezra is and what he was told to do. Now, unlike the first part, we're going to have to jump around a little bit to kind of see that. So it would be really helpful if you still had Ezra 7 out in front of you. Now, remember what Ezra was told to do. His commission was he was to repair the temple, but he was also told to do something else. He was told to teach to establish God's law, to appoint judges and leaders. He's qualified for this because verse 6 says that he is a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He's the living embodiment of what Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says. It says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Ezra's doing that very thing. He's skillful in the law of God, and he's standing before the king of the whole empire. So when it says Ezra's a scribe, it it doesn't just mean he's somebody who copied God's law. He was a student and a teacher of God's word. He believed the Bible was God's word. He could teach it. He could preach it. He could interpret scripture. He knew the word. He understood it. He was able to apply it to others. God had blessed Ezra with knowledge and understanding, and Ezra was willing to use it. He was a Persian official. He worked for the king, but his priority, it seems, was studying God's word. 
And with all the references here to the law of God, there is a strong implication that he had the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. That's important because there's some people who would deny that those even existed at the time Ezra was written. But we should trust the Bible's words. Ezra had it. He knew it. He taught it. God's people have always had God's word in some form. God always gives his people what they need to know him. He wants to communicate us. We need him to reach out to us through his word. In Ezra's time, in his situation, the people needed instruction on how they were to live for God according to God's law. Remember, they'd been in exile for 70 years, and now this is the second return. It's 57 years after that. So it's been 120 years. And so it seems like maybe people had fallen out of the habit. And that's why it's important that Ezra was, as verse 11 says, a scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandment of the Lord and his statute, his statutes for Israel. He had learned to obey God's commandments. Verses 12 and 21 call him a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. He maybe was the authority of God's law in Babylon. And that's why the king, Artaxerxes, gives him a task to go to Jerusalem And his task is to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. He's to go to Jerusalem, look at the temple, and see if God's law is being followed in Israel. Now, there's kind of a hint here that if he needs to do this, then maybe God's law is not being followed or properly kept there. And unfortunately, in a couple weeks, we're going to see that's the case. But in this, Ezra is focused on Israel's relationship with God. And what he knows is the only way Israel can have a restored relationship with God is by the knowledge of his word, knowing God's truth. They know God's truth and they can know God himself. So that's why his mission, as verse 10 says, is to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Teach what God has said. Teach the law. What we find in the first five books, particularly in the end of Exodus through the book of Deuteronomy. And to do this, verse 10 says, he set his heart, he prepared, he devoted himself, he firmly resolved, determined to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. Even though Ezra was serving a pagan empire, he focused on knowing God better and teaching others to do the same. And as we go through the rest of the book of Ezra and into the book of Nehemiah, we will see Ezra and other priests doing this. Remember, this is originally one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, and Ezra shows up in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 8, Ezra and the other priests are said to be reading from the book, the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Ezra and the priest are teaching the people God's word. In this, Ezra is the model priest. He's modeling what a priest was supposed to be. Way back in the law, Moses had said that descendants of Levi, the priest, were to do this. Deuteronomy says, they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. So Ezra is really acting as a new Moses. He is reteaching God's law to his people. He's fulfilling the role of a true priest. As the book of Malachi says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. 
People should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Seems that Ezra had a profound respect for God's word. He had been impacted by God's word. He wanted to see others changed as a result. One scholar, Gary Smith, said that Ezra, he allowed God's word to transform his character and behavior so that he could influence the lives of others. And you know, that's what God calls spiritual leaders to do today. They are to be changed by the word and then change others. We read this in the New Testament with an instruction for pastors, elders, leaders in the church. Paul writes to his uh, protege Timothy to command, teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Your character has changed in your speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Our text tells us about one other task that Ezra is given in this. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. It says, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges, who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever does will not obey the law of your God, the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed. On him. Ezra is to rely on God's wisdom for this task. He's to appoint leaders who know God's law and who teach the people, the Jews who are living in the land. This was something that God's law itself had said that he was supposed to do, that God's people were supposed to do. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. So Ezra and these judges, they are to teach those who do not know God's law. Remember, it had been a long exile, so many people probably fallen out of the habit of reading the word, or they didn't know what God has said. It could have been a whole generation since somebody had read God's word to them. So Ezra the priest are to show the people how to obey God, how to have a personal relationship with him. And you know, this type of responsibility of showing others how to live for God, that's the same role that spiritual leaders have today. That's the role that pastors, elders who have the same role in the church, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Coming up later this year, later in 2021, it will be time for us to elect, re-elect elders. And we as a church have the responsibility to choose those who are over us. And when we do that, we need to think through what Scripture has said. The New Testament gives us a list of character qualifications. I'm not going to go over those today. But the elders are to live according to God's word. The character is to be shaped by it. But that, that's not the only thing. They have a character shaped by it. But they also take the next step. They are passionate. They seek to teach God's word to others. The way we know that God has raised up an elder in our church is if we see a man whose character matches what God's word has said, the elder qualifications, and this man takes the initiative to teach, to instruct others from God's word. But this passage we're reading is not just for spiritual leaders, elders. This is something that all of us need to do. All of us need to have a response to God's word. 
I think the best place that we can look for what how every believer should respond to God's word is back in verse 10. Look at verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Did you see those three things? Ezra was told to study the law, to do it, to obey it, and to teach the law in Israel. That's the same call we have today. The first thing we need to do is we need to study God's word. We need to study God's word so we can know God. We need to seek through it so we can know God better. We know how we can live, how we should live for God. Brothers and sisters, God's word is worth your time and investment every day. And the reason I know this is because it it says it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The order that we see in Ezra 10 here is important, though. We need to study God's word first and understand it. We have to have that first if we're given going to then do it, or if we are going to be someone who teaches it. We study, then do, then teach. If we know God's word, we do what it says. We obey him. God's law and commandments are not a burden to us. They're a guide for knowing God, for living for him. Psalm 119, the psalmist says, Through your precepts, through God's law, I gain, I get understanding. And therefore, I hate every false way. When we know God's word, it changes how we make decisions. It must change how we make decisions. That's why James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Knowing God's word, having studied it, will make a difference in your life. You will do what God has said. True followers of Christ will live differently. If we're studying God's word to know God, it will make a difference in our life. And then if we've studied it, we're doing it, we're obeying it, we'll then want to teach his statutes, his rules, his ordinances. We'll want to tell others about God's decrees, his laws, his regulations. And this is the work of all of God's people. All of us are responsible for making disciples, training people to know God more, nurturing one another's faith, teaching others about what God has said. One scholar, Mervyn Brenneman, puts it this way. He says, more than just the imparting of facts, this involves training in righteousness and motivating believers to love and obey God. It includes learning what a biblical view signifies for practical life today. Now, the truth is, not every believer in Christ is going to be teaching a class or, or preaching a sermon, but we all have a role in teaching others, telling others about what God has said. That role may be sharing about what God has said with unbelievers, teaching them to know God. That role may be patiently teaching, talking with someone who's a new Christian about what it means to follow God. That role in teaching may be encouraging a fellow church member who maybe doesn't know something about God's word that you've learned or needs to be reminded about some truth of God. No true Christian is excluded from this response. We all have ways we can 
teach, not in a classroom setting, but by encouraging others with what we've learned about God. All of us are called to study, do, teach. I know we've all been called because Jesus has told all of us this is our mission. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a role for all of us. This is how God's church grows. This is how we grow as believers. There's no magic formula to figure out about how a church becomes successful. There's no magic formula about, oh, if I pull this lever and this lever, then I'll know God better. There's nothing secret to figure out of, oh, if we do this, then we'll change and impact the world. As Pastor James Hamilton said, the most effective thing that you can do to change the world world is to study the Bible, do the Bible, and teach the Bible. Brothers and sisters, the, the church has changed the world before, not through some grand action or some powerful leader, but by God calling us to know his word, to live according to it. We can impact our community and the world again, and the way we do that is by doing what Ezra has done here. We've looked for God's good hand. and When we see God working on our behalf, we praise him for it. We take courage in that to face what lies ahead. And then we move forward, not in our own strength, but by studying the word, doing the word, and then teaching God's word to others. We do that for his 